Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. As is tradition here at Breakpoints, we tend to bring in the winter holiday season by recapping what happened at ID Week the past October. And we do this with only the Breakpoints host. So these women need absolutely no introduction as you've heard them host this podcast before. But as you guys know, whenever I get a chance to come and rave about my peers, you best believe I'm going to let them be jeweled. So Dr. Julie Ann Justo is a clinical pharmacist lead of infectious diseases at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. This is a new role for Julie. So she recently moved to New Hampshire, is thriving. If you want beautiful photos of fall leaves and like two of the most adorable children in the entire whole wide world, you should be friends with Julie and talk to her more. Julie at ID Week had quite the week and Julie's like blushing. You guys can't. We always have video when we record these podcasts and I've taken to narrating the video because I think it's awesome. Uh, So Julie won the SIDP Outstanding Clinician of the Year. So she got to open ID Week in the opening plenary to accept her award. She wore this stunning red dress, had this fabulous speech about all of the amazing things she's accomplished. But all jokes aside, Julie is an exceptional pharmacist, a wonderful Breakpoints host, and she is going to help us go through some really great data today. So Julie, welcome. Thank you. Now that I'm sweating and super uncomfortable, this is fine. Julie had no idea I was going to say any of that. So. No, I did not. But, but she loves right it. right along. She loves it. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Jeanette Bouchard, our other wonderful Wonder Woman podcast host extraordinaire. Jeanette is a clinical pharmacist liaison at Dason. So recently moved to Columbia, South Carolina, uh, working with all kinds of hospitals in the southeastern United States, as well as a bit beyond, I think. Uh, Jeanette is a stewardship extraordinaire. She's also my partner in crime in attending Taylor Swift concerts. Happy to share photos. Maybe we should put those in the show notes. And Jeanette has really just been an amazing, amazing asset to the Breakpoints team. She's moving up into the chair of our Breakpoints committee here at SIDP. So just does an unbelievable amount of work behind the scenes to make this podcast run. And we would be absolutely lost without her. So Jeanette, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you. Those are very kind words. If we could put photos in show notes, that would be amazing. And also probably a gate we do not want to open up for the future, but I'm enchanted to be on this podcast with you guys today. Hosting with you really hits different. Jeanette, I have the time of my life fighting dragons with you, so I will. When I when I tweet this or Julie has post no this idea. on X or Julie's like, I don't listen to enough Taylor Swift for this, but I, you know what? I am you know solidly what? a Swifty adjacent, but honestly, like I would go to a concert with you guys because I know I'd have a good time. I mean, even if you hate her music, which isn't technically possible, it's such an amazing show. But not to digress too much into that, but since she is also, since we're celebrating end of the year things and she is the global Spotify artist of the year, I mean, we would just be remiss to not to not go through her album. But when I tweet this or X this or whatever it's called these days, which no one is even on anymore, so no one will see it, but I will post the link to this podcast as well as a photo of I, of Jeanette and I at the, at the concerts. I like okay. it. Okay. But let's talk about Boston. So Boston, Boston, October 2023 was a beautiful fall time, wonderful week. So ID week is where we convene every year. It's a meeting of the minds for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, as well as all of its partner organizations. So SHEA, SIDP, PIDS, and HIVMA. And uh, it's a wonderful meeting and it's grown and grown and grown. I mean, I was amazed at how many people were there this year. It was really nice to all be together. ID week always has an online platform. And so 
all of the content we're going to go through on this episode today, you can watch. The content is available online if you registered, or I think you can register now just to access the online content through March 31st, 2024. So we hope this episode inspires you and you can go back and take full advantage of listening to any of that programming and get your CME, et cetera. Okay, to frame this episode, same as what we did last year, we tried to fit five days into one hour and that's not humanly possible. So we're not going to do that. We are going to have two episodes coming at you. So this one this week, there'll be one next week. In this first episode, we are going to cover the late-breaking clinical trials, and we'll tell you when those sessions occurred if you do want to follow along at home. Without any further ado, let's get started with our late-breaking clinical trials. These were actually divided over two sessions this year, which was interesting. And since we don't want to talk for 17 hours, we are only going to cover some select of the trials. We're not going to go through all of them. We took a no COVID rule again because I know we get a lot of COVID content still in other areas, but to the people that presented the COVID late breakers, they were amazing and we appreciate you so much. But as we go through these next late breakers or late breaking clinical trials, we are not going to include the COVID content and we're not going to include trials, which we've covered on other podcasts, but we will highlight for you where those episodes occur and where you can get information on those trials. So this was Thursday at 930, Saturday, 145. Julie, do you want to kick us off with the first one? Yeah, so we are going to start with a complicated urinary tract infection. For this particular late-breaking clinical trial, we were looking at step-down therapy with oral phosphomycin for ESBL-producing Enterobacterialis complicated UTI. This is actually an interim analysis. I wanted to talk about this study because even though it's interim analyses, I have a feeling we're going to have to keep an eye on these data. There's a lot of recent data that's come out on oral phosphomycin for treatment of UTIs, various levels, however you stage it. And honestly, I feel like there's a little bit of controversy, how much you believe or don't believe in the clinical effectiveness of FOSPO. So here we go. This particular uh, trial is a multi-center, open-label, non-inferiority, randomized controlled trial that's looking at the effectiveness of step-down to oral phosphomycin compared to continued therapy with either an IV carbapenem or an IV beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor, for these ESBL-producing enterobacterialis CUTIs. Now, ladies, before you ask me, they didn't tell me which BLBLI was used or how many patients got that therapy. So I'm not even going to go there. We're just going to accept this as a limitation of the presentation. Okay. As they're smirking because I knew they had the question. All right. So this study was performed across four academic centers throughout South Korea, and it enrolled hospitalized adult patients Everyone started on IV therapy up to four to seven days. And then at that point, they were randomized to either stay on that original IV therapy or switch to oral phosphomycin to complete a total 10 days of therapy. Okay. In addition, at the point of randomization for the potential switch, the isolate must have been known to be susceptible to phosphomycin according to a disc diffusion or e-test. And the patient must have been clinically improving in order to switch. Okay, so I think this is important for generalizability. For inclusion, it utilized the typical CUTI definition. I'm not going to go through all the details, but one thing that I do want the listeners to know is that they did include patients with bloodstream infection and pyelonephritis. Um, They were allowed to remain in the study. All right, so the primary endpoint for this trial was clinical resolution of signs and symptoms within four days following the end of therapy. Again, it was a non-inferiority trial. The margin was set at 15% non-inferiority for the upper bound. And with their power analysis, they needed to enroll a goal of 292 patients. 
Again, remember, this was an interim analysis. They haven't quite finished uh, enrollment. They're hoping to do so in December of this year. Secondary analyses were done for endpoints like microbiologic cure, a 30-day UTI-related hospital readmission, or emergency department or outpatient clinic visit following the end of therapy, 30-day C. difficile-associated diarrhea from the end of therapy, um, as well as ICU admission and mortality. So all things that kind of make sense. The interim analysis included 198 patients, which is about two-thirds of their way to their goal enrollment. And they noted that the CUTIs did include bloodstream infection and possible pilo. To put some numbers to that, about 30% of the patients in the trial did report costovertebral angle tenderness, which to me is suggestive that they uh, probably had pyelonephritis. And 29% of the patients clocked in as having a positive blood culture associated with their CUTI, so they did have bacteremia. Uh, in addition, about the patients, the majority of them were older. N nearly 80% were over the age of 65, and the average age was, in fact, 73 years old. And there were significantly more females, particularly in the oral phosphomycin group, at about 80% versus 60% uh, in the comparator group. But otherwise, most of the baseline characteristics were comparable. Patients were pretty complicated at baseline. 20 uh, to 23% had urinary catheters. About 12% had uh, nephrolithiasis and a couple of other uh, complicating factors. The majority of the uh, infections, 83 to 85%, were E. coli. And the mean duration of the phosphomycin therapy, in fact, was about five days. So what did they find? The primary result showed that there was clinical failure in 4.2% of patients transitioned to oral phosphomycin compared to 2.9% of patients continued on the IV beta-lactam-based therapy. So this led to a risk difference that had an upper bound of the 95% confidence interval at 3.84, which is below uh, their 15% uh, definition. So this study, at least at the interim point, meets non-inferiority, but we know we're not going to change our practice because they haven't quite finished their enrollment and achieved the power that they need for us to make any practice changing moves based on this study right there. For the CUTI patients that did have a corresponding bloodstream infection, um, just to dive into those people a little bit more, the outcomes numerically favored the IV carbapenem and or BLBLI patients, where 97% of them um, experienced cure as opposed to 87% of patients with the oral phosphomycin. This was not a statistically significant finding, but given that bacteremia is probably treated a little bit differently as a clinical entity uh, across us listeners. This was a subgroup that I think is worth keeping an eye on. I'm not totally sure uh, that I would go ahead and do oral phospho switch for, for those people because, as we know, phosphomycin is really not going to get appreciable concentrations in the bloodstream. In terms of safety data, diarrhea was slightly more common in the oral phosphomycin group at 12% versus 7% in the comparator. So an alt take home, uh, preliminarily, these data look good. Um, this is an elderly population. Interestingly enough, a third of the patients actually have bloodstream infection, and we're not expecting oral phosphomycin to treat that. So when these final data get published, we're probably going to be asked our opinion on whether or not we want to incorporate oral phospho for these types of infections, and we might have to carve out our interpretation for the patients that have bloodstream infection. So with that, I'll stop, and I'll see Jeanette, Aaron, any initial pulse on these data? Uh, do you think these are interesting? Is this just kind of like, meh? What, what say you? 
I have a question. Did they say, and maybe I missed it, um, how the mean duration to switch or the median duration to switch? Because it's four to seven days of IV lead-in, but are people switching on day seven or are they switching on day four? Excellent question. I did not see that in the slides that they presented, nor did I hear that um, in the Q&A session. But I had the same question as well. Okay. Yeah, because I don't know, Jeanette, what you think. But for me, if it's seven days of IV and we heard that IDSA is working on updated, complicated UTI guidance and seven days is probably good, right? So then mm-hmm. it kind of begs into the question of what does the oral step down What are we treating exactly. at all, right? And so uh, that's probably my main question. They did outline how well patients had to be doing in order to move forward to the switch. So I'll be honest, I'm not sure when these data come out that it's necessarily going to change my practice because we're probably just making a decision of are we good with just calling therapy at discharge or wherever yeah. they are. Or just give a dose of gent and send them home. Single dose amino glycosides. Yeah, <laughs> baby. Make amino glycosides don't, great Don't give again. them an oral prescription at all. Oh, I'm down for that. That's another yeah. pod. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I, know. I did have a quick question. Did they specifically say that they were doing every three-day phosphomycin? They didn't. Uh, they said that the protocol was for a dose of oral phosphomycin at the time of this switch. I was a little confused by that because then they said that the mean duration of phosphomycin was five days. Right. So these are all good points to bring up. Like, of course, we're pharmacists, so we're going to ask, like, what exactly did you give people? Well, and there was that <laughs> right. chronic prostatitis paper that came out maybe a few years back that looked at yeah. daily phosphomycin dosing for a few weeks. And so that's why I was kind of curious, did they actually do every three days that we do here in the United States for uncomplicated or did they take a daily dosing approach like that paper? I'll be completely honest. I'm not sure exactly what interval that they used uh, for the phosphomycin. This was me surmising that they probably got on average about two doses. Um, And again, remember, the majority of the people in this study uh, were female and were elderly. So I think all of this is going to paint a picture about whether or not these are going to be practice changing data for us. So I think at this point, let's put a pin in it and just keep your eye out for when the full publication comes out. But they're yeah. hopefully going to finish enrollment uh, well, in December of 2023. The other thing I'll say, though, real quick before we move to the next study is that the clinical failure in this interim, mind you, though, is 4.2%, I think you said, in phospho, and then 29 in carbapenem. Yep. And, like, math is funny, right? Because if this were not 180-something patients and this were thousands of patients, that would be statistically inferior. So... Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw this with general gram-negative bacteremia data, and I think the best publication out there looking at fluoroquinolones versus beta-lactams, right? And you, recurrences, I'm going to mess this up, but like 0.5% in the fluoroquinolone arm and 1.5% in beta-lactam, and that was statistically more recurrence in beta-lactams, and so everyone's all like squirrely about oral beta-lactams. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. We have a whole episode on it, but that 1% made a big difference, and it's like, rate is still so low. And so here you're like kind of almost, I mean, here you have 1% and it's like, oh, they're the same. Well, it's fine. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And I think right. the other point too, uh, again, we're trying not to slice and dice too much. Nobody, I, I would not recommend changing practice based off of these data yeah. presented. I think really what the authors were hoping to do was get people excited about the trial and introduce the, the protocol, which I think they accomplished. But like, for example, for the microbiologic cure, it was numerically better with the oral phosphomycin group, but that wasn't significant. So you do have some bouncing around of the point yeah. estimates across these different endpoints that don't altogether make sense to me yet. So I'm my read is like, not yet powered, 198 patients, keep going. 
You got to yep. finish. So I think that's where we are. I like it. Okay. Well, let's Kay. keep going. Next trial. Sure. So the next trial is the revisit trial. So I'm actually really excited about this. This is the Astrianam avibactam for complicated intra-abdominal infections or HAPVAP. So this is the phase three trial. Um, this compound is being jointly developed by Pfizer and AbbVie. So they're dividing up different parts of the world. Francis Arhin that was presenting um, these data. This is super exciting for any of you that have tried to give ceftazidime, avibactam, and Astrianam together in the clinical setting. It's annoying. It's it, We're all trying to give it simultaneously, but you know there's issues. But anyway, we want Astrianam together with avibactam to treat particularly our metallobetalactamase-producing gram-negative infections. This is the phase three trial that's looking at these particular infections. It's multi-center, open label, central assessor blinded. They added metronidazole for the subset of patients with complicated intra-abdominal infections. They compared this to the standard, which was meropenem plus or minus colistin. The duration of therapy for the complicated intra-abdominal infections was anywhere from 5 to 14 days. The duration for HAP and VAP was anywhere from 7 to 14 days. This is a big trial. So 81 sites across 20 countries in the Americas, Asia, and Europe. All of the sites had to have either emerging or known high incidence for carbapenem resistance. They were trying to get as many MBL-producing isolates as they could. The primary endpoint was clinical cure at test of cure. Secondary endpoints were clinical cure at test of cure by infection type, microbiologic response at test of cure, safety data, and 28-day mortality. So at this point, they enrolled and analyzed 422 patients. The majority of them, about 74%, were in the complicated intra-abdominal subgroup, and 26% had HAPVAP. The average age across the cohort was 55 years of age, and 66 to 72% were male. So relatively reflective of the patients that we would expect to see. Important when looking at the baseline characteristics, the HAPVAP patients were a lot sicker. So they had higher Apache 2 scores with an average of about 16 to 17, a high proportion of prior treatment failure, 56 to 68%, and all at the time of enrollment had a high rate of uh, mechanical ventilation. Microbiologically, the vast majority of these infections were E. coli, followed by Klebsiella pneumoniae, then anaerobes, interestingly enough, and then Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Now you're probably wondering how many MBL positive pathogens did they actually accomplish getting into the trial? They were a little disappointed they acknowledged that there were only 10 patients out of 271 that had a valuable data, which comes out to 3.7% of this population known to have MBL positive pathogens causing their infection. The primary result was cure at test of cure, and it was found to be comparable. So 68.4% in Estrianam avibactam versus 65.7% with a comparator uh, meropenem plus or minus colistin. That led to uh, an absolute difference of 2.7%, and the 95% confidence interval spanned from negative 11.4 to positive 17.8. Cure rates were lower in the HAPVAP patients. So instead of like mid-60%, you're talking 45 46% in estrianum avibactam compared to about 42% uh, with the standard of care. 28-day mortality was also comparable, about 4.3% in the estrianum avibactam group versus 7.1% in the standard of care group. Mortality, again, was higher in the HAPVAP patients. So we're seeing, looking across these multiple endpoints, that the HAPVAP patients in general had poor outcomes, but this investigational combination was still stacking up okay 
meaning in the mortality for the HAPVAT patients, it was 10.8% in SGNM avibactam versus 19.4% in the comparator group. Okay, so looking at some more detailed information for those 10 patients that had MBL positive uh, infections, this is the micro ITT population. There were small numbers, and two out of seven, or 28.6%, in the Astrianum avibactam group had cure. This is compared to two out of three patients, or 67%, in the meripenem plus minus colistin group. Importantly, a lot of the patients with previous treatment failure among the MBLs were in that Astrianum avibactam group, so six out of the seven in that subgroup. It's really hard, in my opinion, to draw definitive information from these particular data because the numbers are getting so small. I'm hopeful that we can still get some additional recruitment for MBL-producing infections, but I, I'll be honest, I'm not going to draw too, too much from, from these data quite yet. Um, I'd be interested to hear, Jeanette uh, and Aaron, what you guys think on this. Looking at safety, there were comparable uh, rates of adverse events. There was about 18 to 19% serious adverse events uh, across both treatment arms. The most common adverse events of any kind were about 3% uh, ALT um, or AST increase, a fair amount of diarrhea and anemia, but there were no new safety signals for estrianam and avibactam, which are two compounds that we have some clinical experience with um, as of right now. So the take-home for this, estrianum, avibactam, plus or minus metronidazole appeared comparable to meropenem, plus or minus colistin for the treatment of complicated intra-abdominal infections or HAPVAP due to gram-negative bacteria, but these data are limited in terms of cases with MBL production and or prior treatment failure, which mostly resided in the pneumonia arm. LFT monitoring, in my opinion, will also be a thing with this particular combination as it is with other high-dose BLBLIs. So at this point, ladies... I just threw a lot at you, but I think a lot of folks are interested in this particular. MBLs is a headache for a lot of folks, especially internationally. So what do you think? Do these data excite you? It didn't excite me as much as I wanted it to excite me. Hey, that's honest. That's what we're here. She says so unexcitedly. (laughs) (laughs) That one's so. I don't know. I just feel like you hear about it. You used it for this specific combination and you you just want so much out of a trial, especially when they're focusing on MBL and then just, just like a measly couple of MBLs were even You could, honestly, I feel like I could hear the, I felt bad for the presenter. I could hear their disappointment in only having 10 MBL producing isolates enrolled in the trial, but this is so, so hard to do. Um, And this is not unique to this particular uh, product's development, I mean, right? no, this we, is what we, we with approve drugs in the ID realm off of is 10 patients, yeah. 30 patients. You know, we have Mayor Weber back there with our 30 patients yeah. that got it approved. Hey, <laughs> be nice to Mira Weber. Okay. Um, yeah, this gives me um, aravacycline vibes a little bit. Like, it got oh, approved. Oh, don't be mean to Arava and, uh, I it, like Arava. I, I said nothing other than it has the same vibes. What, <laughs> you're the one that was mean. You're the one I'm that reading, went, I'm reading you the went, subtext. You went negative. No, I just... No, what I was going to say, Julianne, is that... Um, I'm sorry, I never called you by your full name. <laughs> I know. Mean, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm in trouble. I'm going to use Julianne, your okay. bold name. <laughs> I just... Oh, boy. Only Julie's mom calls her Julianne. Anyway... Um, anywho, True story. so 
I, a ravacyclin, right, got approved and that was great. We studied it in abdominal infections. And I think there was like one patient with Acinetobacter in that study. And it, it's fine. I mean, that's the nature of finding patients with really complex infections, but that's the bug we need it for, right? So we need ACE training, maybe Bactam for MBLs. And so few patients in the study had the infection we want to treat. So it's, just, it's not bad. It just is what it is. Like Jeanette said, this is the ID space. But I think also... Like you said in the beginning, Julie, we have been using Ceftaz AV plus Astranam, and there's some clinical data from Europe that that combination is superior to standard care, which is whatever combination of nonsense you want to throw at an MBL. And so I think it's just it's interesting because they're developing a new drug, but it's more proof of concept than it is new data, actually. Um, and so really, it's just like, yeah, it'd be nice to have it in one drug instead of two. But I think I, I mean, I. I love people developing drugs and I applaud Pfizer and AbbVie, but they're going to be in an interesting spot because Ceftazavi is about to come off patent. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have a generic Ceftazavi and a generic Astranium, no one's going to use Astranium maybe back to him. And that's just calling a spade a spade. And I'm sorry. And I love all the people from those companies who are listening. And that's not a negative thing in any way, shape or form. It's just you're kind of racing the clock now on when, if and when this drug gets approved and comes to market, you know, Ceftazavi came out in what, 2016? So I'm shaking my head for those that need the video narrated. Like, it's just going to be, I think it's going to be a tough space for this drug. Not that it's not needed. Just that we already give it just in two, two vials, two bags. Nurses will love it. Nurses don't like hanging six bags a day. So save a lot of nursing time by having the drug in one, one package. I mean, we do see those patients every once in a while that that is a lot of beta-lactam for them, right? When they're getting all that ceftaz and all that estreonium and they might be more prone to having transaminitis. I thought it was interesting that the, the transaminitis was already at, you know, 3% across the board here. So true. I I mean, that's why I put it in there like at a minimum, I'm already doing a ton of LFT monitoring on these patients using the current products that are on the market. And I would also do the same thing with this. But if there's a potential that I could keep my patient on it for longer, then maybe this would be helpful. Just to make sure that it is said, I have the utmost respect for both of these research teams for conducting these trials because it is so difficult to do. It's so easy. It's so easy to Monday morning quarterback. So I, yes, it's that's a great disclaimer that anything we talk about on breakpoints is because we think it's cool and interesting. Like you don't you don't get on the content unless it's valuable. Which actually, I forgot to mention this in the beginning, but I wanted to say this: we've been doing these ID Week and ECMID recaps for quite some time now. If you guys have been following the pod faithfully, or even if you haven't, you want to go back to listen to some of those episodes. And I, this time when we outlined the 2023 ID Week recap, I had this like tingling sense of coolness in that some things we've covered, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, two years ago as late breakers are now published and appearing in the ID Week session for practice changing clinical trials. And I, you know, watching the practice changing clinical trials that we're going to cover in episode two for this ID week, I was like, oh, I know most of these because they were late breakers for ECMID 2022. And that's cool. Now, like using this podcast space to follow the science and watch these develop is like really, really neat. And so I, I personally noticed a lot of that this year. And so if those of you are listening and are like, hey, some of those data seem familiar, you're not wrong. And and we're just seeing it evolve and getting to the final stage, which is which is really cool. Yeah. And kudos to all of you that are listening and following along with us. We appreciate you so much. All right, Jeanette, can you, speaking of ceftazidime, AV Bactam, 
Yeah, well, talk to me about that in Little Babies. We'll just keep rolling with the 80 back to him uh, component of this. So we're talking a little bit of a shout out to our peds folks here. Ceftazidime, avibactam, and neonates. This was actually in the second session that happened later in the week, just for anyone who wants to go back and look at the session. It was presented by Richard England from Pfizer. So currently, ceftazidime, avibactam is approved for greater than or equal to three months um, to less than 18 18 years in the pediatric realm. Obviously, it's approved for greater than 18 years and has been for years now. Um, But there was a period of time there where we didn't have a whole lot of data in pediatrics. I think I was actually a trainee under Julie when we were kind of just going based off of preliminary data to dose in our peds. Are you calling me old? No, I'm calling me old, which thus calls you old. (laughs) I think that makes me old, too. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago that we didn't have peds data. It's okay. We'll we'll say we'll say we're both seasoned. How about that? Moving on. I was born in 1989. (laughs) I really was saying my age. I mean, I'm not going to pass up the opportunity for the (laughs) reference, but... I I was also born in 1989, (laughs) and if we really want to go there, my birthday is only five days before Taylor Swift, so. I'm just a Swifty adjacent. I'm not giving you my year, but I will tell you that I share Beyonce's birth date, month, and day is the same, September 4th. Yes. Renaissance did just have the movie premiere, so we can give a shout out to Bay. I I do want to watch that. she was there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, continue. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. The Pete's people are going to be like, you guys don't cover enough Pete's content, and when you do, you stop in the middle and you make jokes. So show them their respect. Listen, the peds people love the jokes. That's true. They They do do. have the best sense of humor. Yeah, peds people are the best. Yeah, let's just all briefly shout out our peds ID colleagues. You guys are you guys are awesome. Yeah, they bring. I share an office with them, and I when I found out I shared an office in New Hampshire with the peds people, I was like, "Ooh, lottery won! Yay!" It's great. The peds ID people at Pitt got me through the pandemic. Honestly, I mean, everyone was wonderful and collaborative and supportive, but the peds people like really went that extra step to like just tell me that I was doing a nice job sometimes. So, Okay, so Jeanette, tell us how to dose this drug in the neonates. So back to Ceftaz AB. So this was a phase 2A, two-part, open-label, non-randomized study in hospitalized neonates and infants being treated for infections. Part A just had a single dose, which they gave Kazavi in between the other doses of the drug they were actually being treated with. And then in Part B, Kazavi was used as initial treatment in newly diagnosed infections where PK was measured after three doses to ensure steady state. They went all the way down to preterm infants at gestational age 26 weeks in their protocol. The dose for full-term infants that were greater than 28 days all the way up to that three months that's currently approved or preterm infants with corrected age of 28 days to three months was 30 mg per keg of ceftazidime and then 7.5 mg per keg of avibactam. And the rate was 120 minutes every eight hours. Then the dose for cohort two, which was full term gestational age greater than or equal to 37 weeks to 28 days, as well as cohort three, which was preterm neonates, so this is gestational age greater than or equal to 26 weeks to less than 37 weeks. From birth to 28 days was 20 mg per keg ceftazidime and then 5 mg per keg avibactam. In Part A, they took three PK samples from day one, and then in Part B, they took three PK samples between days two and 14 after at least three doses of IV infusion to ensure that steady state. For results, they had a total of 46 patients who received drug, 25 in Part A, and then 21 in Part B. Patients aged 
from two days to 89 days. And then gestational age ranged from 31 to greater than 37 weeks. And so they actually did not have any infants under 30 weeks in any aspect of the study, which is important to keep in mind when looking at um, the PK data. In part A, the mean weight was 3.5 to 4.8 kilograms in full term, and then 1.78 kilograms in preterm. And then for part B, full term mean weight was 2.8 to about 4.1, and then preterm was 1.85 kgs. So pretty normal, I think, for those gestational age groups. For the PK data, they broke it down by median plasma concentrations for both ceftazidime and abibactam in Part A, and then in Part B as well. And what we want to see with these PK studies that help expand indication is that concentrations are sufficient to treat infection and that there are no risks of accumulation or adverse events. And so when you look at their data, the single dose concentration aligns up well and is almost identical to the multiple dose data. It showed that there is no accumulation across all three cohorts, which is great in what we look for, especially when we're just expanding that indication. Additionally, when they compared it to the PK studies in patients that were over three months, so those pediatric patients that are between three months and 18 years, they saw overlapped pretty well in terms of medium plasma concentrations. For Part B, they tracked microbiologic data and efficacy results. Although this isn't designed as an efficacy study, so keep that in mind. Most pathogens isolated were E. coli at about 60%, although not all patients had a pathogen isolated, as this wasn't really a requirement with the infection. The treatment duration for this was a medium of about seven days. For test of cure, which was the proportion of patients with microbiological eradication or presumed eradication, aka those with microdata, which was only 10 participants, they found an 80% test of cure. One of these failures was due to a worsening clinical picture while on drug. The study team decided to add another antibiotic, thus led us to a failure. And then the second one just didn't have a follow-up appointment, and so that was also deemed a failure. In terms of safety, 50% of the patients had treatment emergent adverse events, but most were mild and then subsequently deemed not related to the treatment. Part A, there was one mild oxygen DSAT after the first infusion, and so they discontinued the drug. But other than that, there was nothing really seen. There were two deaths reported, although these were not related to study drug, as they occurred over 27 days after the last dose of Casabi. Currently, they did note that they were in the process of filing this information, and so they're trying to get it to label as soon as possible. The biggest take-home points from this are it seems safe and reasonable in this population if you ever need this drug at this young of an age. And there are limited data specifically for gestational age under 30 weeks, so just um, be cautious there. But Yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll say um, in my past institution in South Carolina, so the Prism Health Children's Hospital, I mean, they did have some gram-negative resistance, but I don't recall that it went necessarily to that young of age. But I do know that they needed to know what the dosing was for various reasons. And sometimes it's just empiric coverage. Um, so I think it's, again, it's really important that we continue um, phase four post-marketing surveillance and gathering these data to round out special population dosing because it's they're not just little adults. Yeah. Fully impressed that they were able to get three different levels out of these patients, specifically in part A. Yeah, that's really... Because these babies are at 1.7 kilos, getting three blood pulls out of them is a lot. That's a lot. These are... Did they say, actually, are they using... Because we've talked about this in previous episodes, like technology that came out of Australia. Jason Roberts's group explored this, wherein you can do TDM on a drop of blood to combat this problem of having to do TDM in children, but needing to compete with 
other labs. And I remember this when I was at Wisconsin and did our pediatric stewardship program there. I really want to get a level and saying, well, do you want a level or do you want a serum Mm -hmm. creatinine today? Or like, what do you want? Because we can only take so much blood and you have to negotiate basically what the most important lab is. So that was my thought in this. This is amazing. This is great work. (laughs) This is very necessary work that's really hard to do. And I'm curious if they're using newer technologies wherein you can do TDM with less blood because that's really pivotal in the PEAT space. I'm also incredibly grateful to the research teams and the IRBs and the patients and their caregivers, like everybody involved that made this go because it's it's a lot of effort. Yeah, that's a lot. I don't remember him specifically mentioning devices for the blood draws or any specific method. I do remember he mentioned something about the infusion time being so long and the volume being so little that they were very vigilant about not flushing the line because if you have two mls left in the line that's most of your drug that you were supposed to infuse over 120 minutes so making sure that the Mm -hmm. line gets kind of pushed through at the same rate as it was as the drug and Mm -hmm. not just a flush which in the adult world we see a little bit with our extended infusions i think but Mm -hmm. means so much more in the peds world especially in a study like this yeah that's such a pharmacist tidbit i love it it's important though this it's funny you mentioned that this just came up a nurse notified a pharmacist at our um hospital where we do cell transplantation. Someone was on continuous oxacillin and they said there's still like 100 mLs in the bag. And without all the physicians listening have zoned out at this point, but without getting too far into it, all fluid bags have overfill. The drug itself has a volume when you inject it, you have to withdraw some, whatever. But the way pumps are designed, it's actually impossible to run a bag dry. So you actually always leave some of the dose in the bag, but with continuous infusions and extended infusions, it's a bigger problem because the rate is slower. So we were realizing you're leaving like almost two grams of oxacillin in the bag when you're running it over 24 hours. And that's fascinating. And so we act, this just came up and I don't want to derail us too much, but it's a, it's a really important point. Yeah. Secondary infusions are super important to continue out to drain the rest of the bag yeah. out. Yes. And now we're sweating so t- again and I'm going to look at all of our Ascendant infusions. We, we, just, we, we just talked about if we need to make continuous <laughs> infusions. We literally have email threads in my inbox right now, but we're talking about do we need to make continuous infusion beta-lactams as the secondary line? And I think the answer is yes, but more to come. Yeah. So when you crack that nut, please come back and let us know. I will. I will. I have honestly, I have to give credit to Lou Alexic. She's a pharmacist at, at that hospital. And she's fantastic. She trained Jeanette. Love so. that woman. Yes. Thank you, Lou, for bringing that up. All right, Jeanette, do you want to talk about the next study real quick? Well, one we're actually not going to talk about, but tell our people why not. Yeah. So, um, Solder, um, or um, how do you say it? <laughs> Solbactam, Derlobactam. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Great points, hosts. They're human, too. <laughs> I was like, Solbactam, Deloro, Bactam. Weirdly enough, I had Deloro. I mean, don't look at me. I say things wrong all the time. I had I the D like one. About I me. couldn't remember the rest of Solbactam, which is the one I should know. Help. Okay, let's say it together. Solbactam, Deloro, Bactam. Is it Derlora? No. Oh, there's not an R. It's Derlobactam, oh, right? See, don't Der-lo. see, don't look at me. I don't know how to pronounce things. I'm putting an oh R in gosh. it. Good God! Ooh, so glad you know it, does have an, it does have an R. No, we're D-U-R-L-O. not editing this out. This is great content. Are you? You're not even listening. Derlobactam. Bactam. Yes, exactly. Solbactam. To be honest with you, Solbactam is where I got stuck because apparently I don't know that drug. It's always on the back end. That's why it 
you know, it shifted. Anyway, <laughs> Solder. Anyway, moving on. Solder. Solder. Um, their attack trial, we're not going to go into right now because, spoiler alert, we have a pod coming up where we get to discuss this. So we're not going to touch on this, but just know if you do want to look at the slides and look at the trial, it is in the first session that Aaron mentioned. And so you can look at those slides there, but then look forward to another pod where you get to listen to Aaron talk all about it. Oh my gosh, yes. and it'd be so good. We're very excited. But to everyone who has any hand in, in Solder, we do. We're excited. We're going to cover it. We promise. So please don't be upset that we're not covering it right now. It just needs more time. It does. It deserves Honestly, its own spotlight. It needs more time. So it does. That's and you need smarter people than simply the answer the than three us. of us talking yeah. about it. <laughs> it was also important enough for us to just mention it as like an honorable mention in this our specific group of trials that we picked. So it's super important is what that means. Perhaps when we talk about it in the next episode, I'll, I'll know how to pronounce it, but I also can't really make any promises. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to talk about a word I can pronounce, which is acorn, which has an R, okay? <laughs> so is in every third grader's vocab book. Thank you. I'm teaching my kids Squirrel. phonetics right now, and I'm like thanking myself that we're going through this. Squirrel. All right, so you're a good mom. My mom's a good mom too, but I never learned phonetics because I think I've told this story on this podcast before, actually, because well, I'll tell it again. So I'm I'm terrible at pronouncing words and I'm a very bad speller. And the reason I swear is because I have an older brother and my mom was a teacher and she used to read to us all the time. And so I was reading when I was like two because I just got read to all the time. By the time I got to kindergarten, I was already reading Babysitter's Club's books. Moment wow. of silence. Yeah, those were great. Okay, so... I never like learned A is for Apple and all that because I was already just reading. But it, my adult life, this has actually harmed me quite significantly because I don't understand phonetic pronouncing and I can't spell. So, do you want me to FaceTime you a, when kinda, my daughter yeah. and I are going I would, over it? Quite frankly, yes. So I would, okay. what you're saying is you also spell squirrel the same way Travis Kelsey spells squirrel because that's phonetic. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I empathize with that marvelous man. OK, <laughs> I understand. OK, um, yes, I would love to. I would love to learn phonetics from you, Julie. But anyway, on to Acorn, which I can pronounce and have. So the Acorn trial was published in JAMA on October 14th. So during ID week, very cool timing. The lead author presented this trial at ID Week, but the recording and the slides, unfortunately, are unavailable on the platform. However, it's published, so you guys can check it out. And there was a lot of online conversation, appropriately so, about this trial as it came out during the conference. So it was really, really cool. I was also very blessed and fortunate to be asked by Stephen Tong, who's a fabulous physician in Australia. He peer-reviewed the paper and then was asked to write the editorial for it. And he asked me to write it with him. So I was lucky enough to see these data and have a lot of time to think about them. And I'm really excited to go through them with our audience today. So what was ACORN? I'm actually going to do this pretty briefly because I do think at this point people are somewhat familiar with it. ACORN is an acronym. It stands for Antibiotic Choice on Renal Outcomes Trial. This was an RCT they did at Vanderbilt looking at cefepime versus piptazo in adults who presented to the emergency department and were deemed by the emergency department provider to require an anti-pseudomonal antibiotic within 12 hours of presentation. So this could have been for anything, right? They could have met a sepsis metric and we needed to start it. They could have had an infection, whatever. Um, and that's an important point. So you did not actually have to have culture-proven infection to be included in this trial. This is a trial looking at empiric decision-making. And I want to like bold, underline, emphasize that a lot because I do worry these data will be extrapolated a bit 
to say cefepime versus piptazo in many other situations. So to be very crystal clear, this is a patient comes to your ED and they are not well and they need antibiotics within the first 12 hours of assessing them. I think we all know we're starting broad spectrum therapy in those settings for a myriad of reasons. And so the question is, if I start cefepime or if I start piptazo and then it gets discontinued pretty quickly, I think the median duration of therapy in this trial was like four days or something. So I have to look back at that. But this is really empiric decision making. Are there downstream differences? And so we don't actually know what kinds of infections, if any, culture data. None of that is included. This is really empiric decision making in the subsequent outcomes. This was done from November 2021 to October of 2022. Patients were randomized one-to-one. The primary outcome was the highest stage of AKI or death by day 14. And that was done on an ordinal scale, which kind of talked about ordinal scales before, but because ordinal scales are tough, guys, right? Because clearly going from a creatinine of two to a creatinine of three is not the same as dying. So ordinal scales get a little tricky in terms of the meaningness and the weight of the endpoint, but they did look at death as a secondary outcome. And also in their secondary outcomes, they looked at days alive and free of delirium and coma. So they randomized 2,500 patients, give or take, I think a handful more than that. The median age was about 58 years old, just shy of half were female, 16% black, 5% Hispanic, and they were almost all enrolled at the emergency department. Another important factor is 77% of the patients in the study also got vancomycin. So there was a lot of interest in this in terms of the question of vanc piptazo AKI versus vanc cefepime AKI. You kind of have an RCT to look at that now, even though that wasn't what they primarily were assessing, because the vast majority of patients did have vancomycin exposure. You can kind of look at that in a secondary endpoint kind of deal. The punchline is that there wasn't any difference in AKI or death. So there were 85 patients, in the, which is 7% of the cefepime group, that had stage 3 AKI um, and 7% died. And then in the piptazo group, 7.5%, which was like 90-something patients, had a stage 3 AKI or worse, and then 6% died. So 78 patients died. So really no difference. When they looked at days alive and free of delirium and coma within 14 days, in the piptazo group, it was 12.2 days. In the cefepime group, it was 11.9 days. So that's an absolute difference of 0.3 days. But that was statistically significant. So they said that fewer patients in the cefepime group experienced days alive free of coma and delirium. And so basically what they said is that Giving piptazo does not increase AKI or death, but giving cefepime might result in more neurological dysfunction. So I think the punchline is, though, that there really wasn't much difference. And then the clinical significance of eight hours alive and free of delirium, is that relevant? Some people vehemently feel yes. Some people vehemently feel no. It was open label, so you knew what they were getting. Their definitions of both AKI and neurotoxicity were really rigorous and should be applauded. I think there's a lot of really interesting things here. I think people can feel pretty comfortable about if you give cefepime and vancomycin for a short duration, and that's the key here, right? Empiric and short. Starting antibiotics is probably fine in in patients that are sick. You don't want to get it wrong. It's stopping them. That's the problem. So if you can rapidly de-escalate and pull off VANC, you're probably not going to have this AKI problem, but it doesn't solve the problem of VANC piptazo for five days, six days, seven days, 
Do we start to see biomarker injury there? Do we start to see issues there? And I think that is still really out for debate. And in the editorial, we cite a lot of really nice studies looking at vancopiptazo, biomarkers, et cetera, that we look forward to more work in that space. What I really want to talk about, though, beyond really anything that the authors found with ACORN, is the fact that they did it. And this to me, yes, (laughs) this to me is when I got this paper, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't care what they found. The fact that they accomplished this trial is something that should be talked about forever and applauded and modeled. And this should change, and I'm serious about this, this should change how we approach trials and infectious diseases, and we should do this more to find more answers. So what they basically did, and this is all in the supplement too, is they built an alert in their electronic health record, which is epic, but you could do this in theory in any EHR, and they randomized at the level of the provider because these are often patients that can't consent in the moment. This is a decision we make every single day. You know, cefepime, piptazo, who cares? We kind of consider them the same. But are they the same? We don't know. So there's absolute equipoise to give either antibiotic. And so the dis- randomization was at the level of the provider to say, do you want to rule into this trial and let us pick cefepime or piptazo? Or does your patient require one or the other? And the physician could override the alert and say, no, I have to proceed with piptazo or I have to proceed with cefepime. And then cool, then they did. Or if they were like, oh, actually, I don't care. Either one is fine. I want anti-pseudomonal coverage. Then they could opt in. And then they got a randomization that was triggered and then they tracked it. This kind of pragmatic, effective, efficient, embedded platform to do clinical trials is so Stop smiling at me, Jeanette. She's like shaking. She's like, so I'm so excited. Okay. It's so awesome. It is And Steve and I, I think, so Steve was a peer reviewer, but also Steve and I did a lot of work with Remap Cap, which is what we did with Remap Cap. Like this was just embedded into routine clinical care. It breaks down barriers to trial enrollment. That's how they had more black patients enroll. That's how they had more Hispanic patients enroll. This is how you get patients that are traditionally underrepresented and excluded from these kinds of things because there is no barrier to entry at the patient level. It's the Um, ultimate nudge. It's amazing. All of our steward listeners are like, yeah, guys, we know this. This, The tools are right there. We just got to turn them on. I literally want to go to Nashville just to go to Vanderbilt to find these people to say good job. So I hope they listen to this. They probably don't because they're probably too busy designing cool trials. Um, <laughs> that that clinical but... informaticist or whomever it was that built that pop up, like Ingenious. they deserve like it, a bottle it, of Dom. Some some kind of thank you. <laughs> no, it was the physician, and that he even has be- some uh, kind of like that makes he's sense. A, he's a physician with I think I'm pretty sure he's a physician with informatics dedicated time, which. Yes, we have some of those at UPMC too. There are people in these kind of dual roles and he did this all and ran with it. Can I just say, it's amazing. I've been in practice for a while, but like if I could do it all over again, I wish I had gotten my informatics degree. And it's for stuff like this. As soon as you see it, I'm just like, I just, just give me the keys. I just want to write the code. So I have like, I'm not surprised that it was a physician that has informatics uh, expertise because then the creativity is just, look at how powerful it is. It's amazing. You can build your own pop-up, right? You don't have to wait on all the, the that or you know that the pop-up exists and you understand what the capacity is. I think that's the missing link for a lot of what we do is like, what is the capacity? Right. I will say having a a physician or a pharmacist with informatics time is is really life changing. I've worked in an institution where we I had a lot of those and the way things got done so fast, like you could just give them an idea and they were like, yeah, or no, actually, like based on a physician aspect, this would actually be better. And they create it. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing especially compared to when you're working with informatics that maybe don't 
practice clinically quite as often or ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. And so I think all in all, I think we can safely say that empiric short course of Piptazo plus minus Fank does not increase your risk of AKI. Extended Piptazo and Vank juries out still on impact on it, whether it's true AKI biomarker thing. I know there's such a debate on that. Cefepime causes neurotoxicity. We know this. This is a thing. It's exposure dependent. There's a lot of ongoing data in TDM and things like that. I don't know if I don't know if three days of cefepime causes neurotoxicity. I think sick patients are sick. They did give the cefepime IV push, which I hate. I'm sorry, Vanderbilt people. I love you. I love the stewardship pharmacists there. I think this was a fluid shortage thing that they probably just kept because it probably operationally is easy. But giving cefepime IV push routinely is probably not the best PKPD optimization of cefepime and might be associated with more toxicity. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. Um, but yeah, all in all, the fact that they did it, and I think if we could answer other common questions this way, anytime you have a choice and you're like, I can do this or this, and it's a shoulder shrug, put that in a trial, study it in, in real time, in clinical care, in routine care, learning while doing. This is my mantra. Okay, I'll move on. You're as fired up as you are about CMV. This is great. I know. I get fired, this fired up about everything. It's kind of exhausting sometimes, but <laughs> it's like, I just got to chill. I'm, I'm thoroughly entertained. I'm going to get this excited about the next one, too. So let's move on to another drug. Uh, the next one's a good one. All right. Keep going. Another. OK, I can't pronounce this drug. So this is all right. Our last trial is. Uh, uh, Harmony. Nurse. nurse. OK, so actually funny. You so it's the Harmony trial. But when I first read it, I definitely read it as Hermione. <laughs> the nerd like, level on this podcast. I, like, is oh, just, I thought I was, I was like, oh, like starting you off small. I was like, yeah, we can do this one. Her. <laughs> harmony now i'm gonna say it wrong well, hermione i well because harmony you know should have a y but this is an ie and i thought read it as hermione and i was like oh harry potter trial and then i was like i'm an idiot but this is nersevimab did i say that right nersevimab you're gonna have to say that again because we're too busy laughing <laughs> nersevimab is that right feels right yes okay that's right nersevimab which the brand name is bay fortis and i think Everyone listening just groaned because you're going through how to operationalize giving this drug now because, spoiler, it is FDA approved, which is awesome. But the data, I'm going to get really excited about this because this is really, really cool, too. This is practice changing science, and this is awesome. So this was a drug that's co-developed um, and marketed by Sanofi and AstraZeneca. It's now approved in the EU, the UK, and the United States. The first trial for this drug was actually published in 2020, and everyone was a little busy. And then they did another study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2022, and they presented it at ID Week. And now, again, this drug is available. So what is this? This is a monoclonal antibody to prevent RSV. It is not a vaccine. It is a pre-exposure prophylactic antibody a la Evyshield for COVID back in those good days. And so RSV, RSV is bad. RSV is common. RSV causes a lot of problems in small babies. RSV contributes a lot of morbidity to our health system and sometimes tragically mortality. If you have children, you know RSV is scary. So this is a huge public health problem. Okay. The majority of hospitalizations related to RSV around the world are in otherwise healthy infants, born at term infant. This isn't something that only impacts people with other comorbidities. This happens in healthy term infants. And so this is a problem because they can be very, very, very sick. This study was also very cool. I like that the, the presenter emphasized, like, you know, the coolest part of that, this, obviously, this is great that we have this RSV preventative measure now, but the fact that we did this trial, again, these are babies. It is very hard to consent and enroll trials in children, okay? 
This was a pragmatic real-world study. They did this in hospital maternity wards, out in the community care settings, GP practices in the UK, primary care, open label, obviously, because there's nothing, currently standard care is nothing. Like you just hope your baby doesn't get RSV. So you either got this injection or not. They're not going to give a placebo IM injection to kids. That would be not great. So open label, you know, if you got it or not. Uh, multi-center parallel to arm study. They enrolled over 8,000 kids. This is awesome. Okay, so 4,037 patients enrolled to treatment, 4,021 patients to no drug. They made this really easy for the parents, okay? Make doing the right thing easy. You go a very long way. It was like this very community-focused, collaboratively developed and designed trial that made entry easy, okay? Who got in? Infants who are at least 29 weeks gestational age. You get age, age, age. They got an IM injection of <laughs> nersevimab. If they're less than five kilos, you get 50 milligrams. If you're five kilos or more, you get 100 milligrams, and then no intervention is standard care. So hence, open label again. They stratified randomization by age, country, and then if you were born before RSV season or during RSV season. This is also the cool part. You got your one single visit and then everything else was remote monitoring, okay? Everything could be done via telemedicine, which I also kind of think is the future of clinical trials. They were evaluated throughout the RSV season. They monitored adverse events for 31 days, but serious AEs got monitored for a year. So there are some patients that are still ongoing in final follow-up. About half the kids were born in season, half out of season. In the treatment group, there were 11 hospitalizations, which is 0.3%. In the patients that got no intervention, there was 60 hospitalizations, which is 1.5%. This translates to an 83.3% efficacy. There is a beautiful curve of the proportion of days of free of RSV hospitalization. It splits wide open. This was a highly effective intervention. And then when you look at all-cause lower respiratory tract infection, regardless of the result of the RSV test, still had an efficacy of 58%. So that's really interesting. This, so in the audience Q&A at ID Week, someone asked, well, this was open label. So wouldn't you be more prone to bring your child to the hospital one way or the other? And would that skew your results? And the guy was hilarious when he answered. And I very much appreciated this. He goes, well, unlike in the United States, in Europe, it's really hard to get into the hospital in the winter. Like we do not admit people to the hospital unless they have to be there. And as a parent, you don't, first of all, as a parent, you like honestly may or may not even remember this. When your kid's sick, like your kid is sick. You're not trying to game the system or be, oh, they were in this open label trial and maybe they got this. Like your kid's sick, you're taking them in. They're going to the hospital if they need to. And so the reason they broke this down by confirmed RSV and then all lower respiratory tract infections is because I guess in Europe and in the UK as well, the point of care testing availability may not be there as readily. And so they got in, the decision to admit was likely made before they knew if the patient had RSV for sure. So that's another reason that even though it was open label, this endpoint of hospitalization is a pretty hard and trustable outcome. Yeah. So this was great. This is approved. This is available. This works. So where do we stand? This was FDA approved on July 17th of 2023. It is recommended for all infants younger than eight months born during or entering their first RSV season. And then for infants and children aged eight through 19 months who are at increased risk of severe RSV disease and entering their second RSV season. So that's who this is recommended for. 
Then on August 3rd, 2023, ACIP weighed in on this and the CDC unanimous vote in favor of recommending its use aligned with the FDA package insert. And in the United States, ACIP voted to unanimously include this in the Vaccines for Children program. Now, we have this new fancy monoclonal antibody that's quite expensive and everyone wants to get it, right? And so as with anything that comes out, there's a shortage. We don't have enough to get us through the first season. And so what we're currently facing in the United States is what do we do with this? Where do we give it? And who gets it first? And right now, for some sites don't even have enough to give to everyone enrolled in the Vaccines for Children's program. So at least in my institution right now, like we don't have enough supply and it's currently limited to the Vaccines for Children program. But as this becomes more readily, and you know, unfortunately, it's already December, right? We're in RSV season. But as this becomes more available and where we position this, I think is going to be really interesting. And I know has been a heated debate and discussion amongst many a listserv about what to do with this drug. It's amazing that it exists, but now it comes with all the economic implications and logistics of getting this into infants. And then let's not forget, and we'll talk more in our second episode, but we do also now have RSV vaccines. And so the Pfizer RSV vaccine is recommended for pregnant patients who are from 32 weeks and zero days up to 36 weeks and six days of gestation. If the person that births you got the RSV vaccine, you do not need to then get this antibody on top of it. So Really, we'd like to be vaccinating pregnant persons, but in the absence of that, of course, which this season, no one would have received the RSV vaccine because it just came out, what to do. So what are you guys doing with this? So for us here in Northern New England at DHMC, I'll say that we've got um, both of the RSV vaccines and Nersevimab on formulary um, because we felt like we had patient populations that would benefit from all of them. So that includes the GSK, RxV, the Pfizer Abrisvo, and then this uh, Nersevimab or, or Bayfortis. Um, we were fortunate enough that we got a decent initial supply of Nersevimab, and so we're fortunate enough that we are giving it to our inpatient um, infants that are eligible. We are trying to prioritize it to those that are under six months of age because we think they stand uh, the most benefit, and we, we really don't have enough to, to go run for everyone. We're trying to stretch it until we think we can get some more in. But this is hyper-local, I think, in terms of what each state and what each health system has available to them to purchase um, until the manufacturer can really kind of ramp up uh, production and, and get enough supply out there. So it really does remind me, actually, Aaron, it's given me flashbacks to COVID maps and what we had to do with um, making sure that we could get the limited supply we had to the patients that would stand the most benefit in the short term and kind of patch in a plan. So a lot of effort going in um, over these weeks and months by a lot of different people. Um, shout out to Jeff Lowe, our peds pharmacist here at DHMC, who has been like leading the charge. Um, he's done a lot of work with this. So I, I will not take credit for that. I'm just like, yep, you, you keep doing, you keep giving those babies that map because it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, we're all very excited that we're able to give it. Well, our experience may be a little bit unique insofar as we are giving it inpatient, but that's because we service a relatively rural area, and it's unlikely that an outpatient pediatrics clinic would have access to nursevimab. So, um, again, hyperlocal um, until we get enough supply as to what folks are probably going to do. And I wouldn't be surprised if another part of the country is very different on their solution. Every hospital I've talked to doesn't really have any of it. But I also deal with very small community hospitals, and so they might not be the ones that directly have the access right away. 
Yeah, yeah it seems and like the larger centers might be the ones that have adequate supply, which is kind of sad. Yeah, and this I think it just bring it is it's very it's very monoclonal antibody reminiscent and it's very reminiscent of every other drug too. I think just this is actually true all the time. When new drugs are developed, there's not enough, but you most other antibiotics are more niche and so it's fine that we only have a handful of boxes cuz we only have, you know, one metallobetalactamase infection or what have you. But when these kinds of public health changing drugs come out, it's incredible. It's amazing. Thanks for doing it. Yay, all these good things. But then we face this consistently that we can't get it to the patients that need it in the season they need it, right? I guess you can't match the timing perfectly, but this came out right as RSV season was starting. And this was really, this has been very challenging. Didn't stand a chance. (laughs) Yeah, in wanting to get patients this drug, and I get it. And parents are advocates, physicians are advocates, and we just don't have the drug. And so looking at our health system as a whole, something we need to keep working on together to go further. And with that, the time has come, Breakpoint's Faithful, for the I Feel Nerdy section. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. Last year's I Feel Nerdy, for those of you that remember, we did Midnight's edition, because that's when the Midnight's album came out. So I'm just thrilled that obviously we've continued the, the Taylor trend. For this year's I Feel Nerdy, I want each of you to share something that's really nerdy, and it brings you the same level of joy as seeing Travis Kelsey go to Trader Joe's to buy Taylor Swift ice cream brought me and Jeanette. This is a high bar for ID week. (laughs) Actually, you know what's funny, though, is the bar is actually so low. We are so excited that we saw a guy buy her ice cream. And it's like the bar is actually really low, right, in general. I mean, if it was the ice cream she likes. (laughs) Nothing's worse than coming home with ice cream you hate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's TJ's and we are not sponsored by Trader Joe's but like not, but like the joy I wonder if he got her the some joy. Of those flowers while he's there yeah. too he, those are some nice he put up with those crowded aisles for her in that parking lot that's insane I, yeah yeah Trader Joe's has nice flowers too okay moving on the thing that I loved that brought me a lot of joy was Nico Cortez Penfield who's a friend of the pod been on the pod and he yeah Julie I think he did an episode with you fantastic yes, wonderful it was a great one Yes. Nico has done a lot of us a lot of favors by really diving deeply into the osteomyelitis literature and bone and joint infection literature and really getting us to think about using oral antibiotics. And so his talk was titled A Bone to Pick, which is fabulous, Mm -hmm. The Role of Oral Antibiotics in Bone and Joint Infection. So pick being P-I-C-C. So clever. So this was Friday at 2.15. Clinical Conundrums in Copat, which I also love that as a whole concept too. this moving away from outpatient has to be IV and managing complex oral therapy outpatient. Fantastic. I love it. So what was great about this? He starts with showing this behavioral science pyramid of decision making and having tough conversations. And this is really reminiscent of the work that Esmita Sharani and Julie Simzak do. And it's just I love the behavioral stewardship work, too. He has this quote in his slides that says, tough conversations are tough, but they're not a reason to fold. I love that. I love the thought of, it is. Change management is extremely challenging, but half the battle in good infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship care is like working people through the emotion behind prescribing. Because I think we all see the data, but social culture and emotion is going to trump that. And we see that with moving toward oral. So I love how he structured the talk because what he did is there was a peer survey done about whether or not you're using oral antibiotics for bone and joint infections, and if not, why. And then every slide has the peer response at the top of like, 
I don't use orals because I'm worried about toxicities. And then he goes through the data on the toxicities with IV therapy and creates this cognitive dissonance as he walks through all of the data on why we should be using oral therapy. And I just think it's awesome. I strongly encourage everyone to watch that session if you have access to it because it's just a really nicely done way to present these data and just kind of say, okay, here's what you might hear on rounds and here's the argument against and then here's the data for and here's the questions we still have to answer. So just a really beautiful job. Well done, Nico. Yes. For mine, I would have to say it was the addressing knowledge gaps in micro lab breakpoints, collaboration and reporting interpretation, specifically Elizabeth's talk on collaborative reporting interventions between micro and ASP. So first off, in the beginning, she had a LAN acknowledgement slide, which I love when we go to conferences or have any sort of like pharmacy or science related event or even just at work where people bring up things that are not sciencey because I just feel like you just drill yourself into this science hole and you it's nice to like come out of the hole and be like oh world is around us and not just like PKPD drug levels things like that so I thought it was really cool to have something like that in your slides and to try and kind of just be cognizant of the fact that we're on traditional territory at that meeting specifically and then she took a moment to acknowledge the traditional territory that she works on um, on the West Coast. So I thought that was really cool and something that kind of made me a little bit happy on the morning I watched it. And then I also love a good talk that hones in on Stewie microclabs. So I love working with the microbiology lab. I love all of the people I've ever met in a microbiology lab. And so when we have talks that really hone in on how we can work together and how diagnostic stewardship can be a good partnership with microlab, Diagnostic stewardship is a bit of a hot topic right now. I think it's kind of a buzzword. It's very fetch for those Mean Girl fans. But I think she she brought us through and highlighted practical applications of interventions that stu stewardship pharmacists and micro personnel can have together, such as nudging. So I love when nudging comes back year after year. I love a good nudge. Mm -hmm. Julie, what was your fave? Oh, man. Just to riff a little bit off of both of you. Erin, that session that I was very honored to be a part of. The other talk that comes right after Nico's was by Leila Castellino from Parkland Health and UT Southwestern. That was one of my favorite sessions. It wasn't even going to be the thing that I said for I Feel Nerdy, but I encourage if you're going to go out and listen to Nico talk about orals for like osteo and stuff like that, please stay and listen to the real world implications of how to do COPAT because that was one of the most valuable sessions that I learned as just like a clinician the real world nuggets of information and lessons of how to actually make this go. Those two sessions back to back were incredibly uh, powerful. <laughs> anyway, we're just going to keep going. But the stuff that made me really geek out and this was my I feel nerdy moment. Not surprisingly, my I feel nerdy is going to be about PKPD and precision dosing because I otherwise I wouldn't be Julie Justo. But I know I Jeanette was, was like PKPD is not the whole world. And I'm like, it but is it to is some for people me. on this podcast. <laughs> I was like, no. I was like, so I am going to lean in. I didn't say anything, but I was like, I'm here for hey. scientific brain balance, which is we need nature in there. Hey, I I'm, do think I'm down for all of that. I do think that's an amazing thing. They do that in Australia. Anytime they give a talk, they acknowledge the native land. And I think that's I'm, it's incredible. It's really amazing. I'm humbled. I really love that. I think it's yeah. it's so inclusive and it and it. To Jeanette's point, it gives a nod of something like outside of these four walls, like what's the context of where we actually are. So I yeah, love why are we doing what we do to take care of people mm -hmm. on this planet, right? Not to get existential, but 
And in the era of inclusivity, I do believe in precision dosing. And so I was fortunate enough to be invited to moderate a session on linazolid dosing. I got to meet the international scientists that are doing linazolid TDM in Italy and Japan on the regular. So this is Pier Giorgio Kojuri and Yasuhiro Suji from Italy and Japan, respectively. They both gave fantastic presentations. They get linazolid TDM levels on the routine. And I also learned a lot about the structure of his position. So again, feeling nerdy, he was telling me, you know, he's a medical doctor, but he's uh, specifically a clinical pharmacologist at the University of Bologna. And so the routine linazolid TDM levels that are all interpreted uh, within their health system are done by those types of physicians, the clinical pharmacologists, um, instead of clinical pharmacists, as usually happens in the U.S. So that's just a separate, like, I feel nerdy. I was just like, oh, my God, I didn't know that that's how they divide and conquer the rules in a different system. And then we start talking about, you know, they have the National Health Service in Italy and they can obtain routine levels for not just linazolid but other antimicrobials. So it's much easier to potentially implement precision dosing based on uh, adaptive feedback with TDM than it even might be here in the U.S. So, so fascinating stuff. And then we're standing there and we're talking to Dr. Suji and he gave me some great ideas about how we can leverage mathematical models to like generate easy, practical decision trees to guide you know, general clinicians in how to accomplish precision dosing of something like linazolid for their patients. So being able to talk shop on the real world logistics with both of them, it got us into a great debate of the ways healthcare is delivered across the world and how that shapes solutions that we develop for precision dosing in our local communities. You know me, I was super nerdy, honored, humbled, all the things, like I loved every minute of it. So if you want something that's, you know, on the same level of this Taylor Swift relationship, that was it for me. That's fair. That tracks. Linazolid TDM also fills me with great, great joy. Well, ladies, with that, we have concluded our first ID Week recap episode. Like we said, please come back next week when we'll have even more great content for you. And thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. This episode was co-hosted by your Breakpoints host, so myself, Aaron McCreary, Julianne Justo and Jeanette Bouchard. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Megan Klatt and Jeanette Bouchard. It was peer-reviewed by Drs. Angel Hayerly and Zing Tan. The executive producer of Breakpoints is myself. Our theme song was recorded by Dr. Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.